We're continuing um, a series. We've been in a series for the last few, last two weeks. We started last Sunday called Hashtag Beginnings, Beginnings. And it's a series through the book of Genesis. And um, uh, for this summer season, I know that um, people will be on travels. Um, it, it's kind of um, something that I've come to expect, that with the different tide and flow, summer vacation, people in and out, but what I do want to say is this is a continuous story that has to be heard. So even if you are on vacation in Alaska or visiting your, your family in Sweden or somewhere, um, listen to the podcast because the continuation of the story I think is going to be important. You, I want you to have the full effect of this series through Genesis. And so stay connected with us through the podcast and listen to this wherever you are in the world um, let me just say that if you are a learner, we do have some learners in this place. We attract learners here at Woven. Uh, and if you have time and a desire to go deep into the story, into the biblical story, um, this sermon series will be great, but you really want to supplement it with Sunday school. And um, even this, sun, this morning, we were already looking at Genesis chapter 37, so we're in the Joseph story, and you're getting a deeper dive in the Sunday school. So that might be something if you're interested, if you say, hmm, this summer season, I actually want to go deeper. I want to go deeper into scripture. I have a desire to learn, and I want to know how this applies to my life because I want more than a Sunday service um, that might be a good next step, 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings um, just prior to this behind that wall in the fellowship hall. If you're interested, here's what I'm going to ask you to do to, to speak to my TA, Blake, if you could raise your hand. Blake, also, he's going to become a member soon. Um, Blake, as well as uh, Sonia, Sonia and her husband are on the track to becoming members. And um, uh, he is also my TA for Sunday school. Is that okay if I say that? Yes, so um, if you're interested, you can speak with him. Um, we had four people in attendance this morning and a very um, lively discussion. And I think it will be um, very helpful for us to get deeper. Use the summertime. Use the different seasons. The different seasons, there's some seasons where you might be active in outreach. There are some seasons where you want to go deep in learning. And so if this is that summer for you, um, I encourage you. So we're not going to start from Genesis chapter 1. Um, we're starting from the Joseph story from Genesis 37. And for the summer, we're going to make our way through the end of the Joseph story for multiple reasons. One of which is here at Woven, um, I like to preach with continuity. Um, I don't want to preach something and then say, well, we're done with that, and then just put, put it on its shelf and never talk about it again. Um, there are themes, if they're so important, and we preachers, we, have, we wrestle with meaning inflation. This is the most important thing you're going to hear in your life. This is going to be life. If that's the case, then it bears, um, it, it, it's important to repeat some of these themes. And there are a lot of themes in Genesis, in the story of Joseph, that are very similar to something we talked about last summer. Joseph is very similar to, anybody know? In the Old Testament, another male Old Testament character, Daniel. So if you remember, we did the Daniel series, and so some of those themes are going to come up again. Another reason why I want to talk about the Joseph story is because I know summer is for families. And some of you, um, I was joking before, somebody visits Sweden, somebody visits Angola, somebody visits um, South America, somebody visits Korea, wherever it is, Canada. Um, oftentimes, we Houstonians will spend the summer months with our families. And sometimes we'll say, you know, Give me four days, that's about all I can take. Maybe sometimes it's a four-month visit. Whatever the case is, this is a time, I think, for family reconciliation. So, last week we set the stage with Joseph and his dreams, and he had all these crazy dreams, and we saw the dysfunctionality of the family right away. We were talking about this in Sunday school. If the father, Jacob, showed less favoritism... Maybe the son would not have acted out so much. Hey, guys, listen to this dream I had. Not very mature. Maybe the story would have been different. But in the midst of the family dysfunction, there is something called the plan and the providence of God. 
The providence of God is at work even in the midst of family dysfunction. That's not to excuse family dysfunction, that it can continue again and again. It's not to say that maybe Joseph had to go back down to Egypt again and again. Hopefully he learned from one sojourn. And so what happens is with all of this dysfunction, it sets the stage for today. And the title of today's talk is The Death of Joseph. The Death of Joseph. In fact, we're not just going to talk about the death of Joseph. We're also going to talk about the death of Jacob. So if you look in your notes, does everybody have a, a, a note, a bulletin sheet, a note sheet today? I don't know if those were passed out. But if you don't have one, just um, raise your hand, and we'll make sure one gets to you. But the thing is, um, we're, we're not just talking about the death of the son, but today we're going to talk about the death of the father. And by death, I don't want you to think, wow, this is kind of heavy. It's a little morbid. There's death. There's multiple types of death. We can understand death um, you know, obviously there's the physical death, there's the passing away, but we're also talking about um, almost like a spiritual death. You see, uh, if you can pull up on the screen that, that cover of that book by C.S. Lewis, Till We Have Faces, I want to recommend this book to you if you're traveling this summer and you want some light reading, well, if you want some fiction, if you want some adventure, this is a great book. It's kind of like his book, his series Chronicles of Narnia, except for adults, for grown-ups. And you want something that's not just light and fun, but you want something that's deep and that speaks to you. Till We Have Faces is the last book that C.S. Lewis wrote with his wife, uh, Joy Davidman, before he passed away. And it is widely regarded as his most mature, well-written, it's regarded as his masterpiece. The funny thing is, nobody's heard of this book. Um, but it is truly one of the great books in his, in his body of literature. And if I can just tell you a little bit about the story, really, you need to know how the story goes in order to be drawn in. It's about a queen and this woman who, when she was younger, her sister was taken away by God. So Queen Orwal, um, this is based on an old Greek myth that C.S. Lewis revives. Queen Orwell's sister Psyche gets taken away by God and for the entirety of her life and this whole story, she's mad at God. You took away from me what was rightly mine and everything that I want and all the people that I love, you take them away from me and now I'm so mad, she says, that I'm going to die and I'm going to spite God and God says to her, I'm not going to let you die. I'm not going to let you die until you die. Die first before you die. There's no chance after. Before you die, you have to die. Or else it will be too late. There will be no more opportunities. And that's this powerful line from that book. This powerful idea of the conversion that has to take place with the stubborn father or the recalcitrant son or the conniving daughter or the jealous mother. Now today we're talking about fathers so I can be a little gender specific. But really this applies to everybody that there is something about you and I that we can't just come to church, friends, the gospel message has to disturb us enough. We have to shake our fist to heaven enough times that we have to die before we actually die in order for us to experience the blessings that God has in store. So the big question is, does the son, Joseph, does he die before he dies? But also, does the father, Jacob, does he die before he dies? And those are the two halves of what we're going to talk about today. And what we're going to do is we're going to jump back and forth. Let me show you this really quick. If you can pull up that first picture, chiasm one. Let me show you the structure of what I believe is going on here. I want to teach a little bit, um, and this is just a taste of what we're talking about in Sunday school. But I also want to teach you this because when you know a story, sometimes you can interpret it better when you know how it starts and when you know how it ends as well. 
And the authors of, of the Old Testament books, they do this often enough. This thing, it's called a chiasm. I've mentioned this at least once in the past at church. They do this often enough for it to be a thing, for it to be a thing. And basically what they do is they tell a story in linear fashion as we are accustomed to. For example, A, I went to school. B, a dog chased me. And C, the climax of the story is the dog bit me or I jumped over the fence. So that's linear storytelling. But what happens here is that it reverses. And so you have A, B, C, D, E, F, G, starting from chapter 37. You have this linear progression of Joseph, the dreamer, and then mourning his death, and then going to Egypt, and then all this stuff happening. He saves Egypt. And then finally, the climax of the story is when he gets reunited with his brothers, but they don't recognize him. This is the high point. But at this point of the story, what we see, and you know, I believe, I believe some of it is quite intentional, is those same themes get repeated, but now in reverse. In reverse. So say where you've had in, this, uh, in chapter 40, this theme E, Joseph is the savior of Egypt. We see a couple of chapters later on in chapter 46, E prime, Joseph becomes the savior of his family. And so just as A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, that gets reversed, G prime, F prime, E prime, D, C, D, A prime, all of these showing these same themes being reflected and repeated again. I say this and show this the next slide after that, Chiasm 2. I say that because I want us to approach our, the structure of this, of this Joseph story. I want you to read the beginning and the end. I want you to know how the story starts, but I want you to spoil it for yourself. Because when you know how the story begins and you know how it ends, there's a lesson there. There's a lesson there. There really is. And what we're going to focus on today is B and B prime. These double themes in the beginning, the death of Joseph. Joseph dies. Jacob says, oh my God, what am I going to do? My son is dead. But then fast forward to B prime where Jacob, the father, dies. So we're going to see both the son and the father die. And we're going to see if they really died before they die. That's the structure. Hey, buddy. So let's begin with that first, that first part in chapter 37, the death of Joseph. The death of Joseph. I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 37, verse 13, pick up from last week. I'm going to do a little bit of skimming to capture the essence because there's a lot of reading. But listen to the word of the Lord in Genesis 37, verse 13. The father, Jacob, Jacob is the father. He says to his son Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come and I will send you to them. And his son says, Okay, I will go. Now how many of you dads do this? You like to order your sons or your daughters around. Like your feet are already up on the coffee table and you're like, son, can you get me a drink? Get me a lemonade. Or son, I'd like you to go do this. I have an errand for you. Son, can you go turn off the AC upstairs or something like that? You know, we do these, we, we give them these tasks. This might have been the most regrettable moment in Jacob's life where he looks back and he says, I wish I never asked him to do that. I wish I just kept enabling my son and did this stuff for him. Oh, you know, I'll do it for you, but that eventually would have still led to the same problems. Favoritism eventually leads to family dysfunction. That's what we talked about last Sunday. But probably Jacob beat himself up saying, why did I ask him to do that? Because that was the last time I saw Joseph alive. And the rest of his life, or at least for the next few decades, Jacob believes that his son is dead. I wish I never did that. And what happens is Joseph goes down to Shechem to seek out the brothers, to look for them. And look at this in verse 14. Um, in verse 15, a man finds Joseph. It's so comical. And what's he doing? Was he searching for his brothers? He's just kind of wandering around. Outside, outside in the field. He's just wandering around in the field doing Lord knows what. 
Lord knows what. And so he's wandering in the field and looking around, and uh, this man, this interesting character, he asks him, what are you looking for, young man? What are you looking for? This is an interesting question. Understand, we're readers of this narrative. We know what Joseph is looking for. He's looking for his brothers, correct? So why is it necessary for whoever wrote this to put this little side story, this little unnecessary detail that Joseph wandered around? It's kind of a waste of ink because we know what he's looking for. So why the unnecessary question? That's my question. Why the insertion of this question and this character? Why? If not that sometimes the devil or maybe God is in the details. That the simple question, what are you looking for, son, is exactly what Joseph needs to hear to wake up from his wandering, to spur on, to trigger the deep questions that young boys need to ask. That every now and then, you know, I want to ask my own children, what is it that you're looking for? I don't know, my Xbox? My phone? What? I hate that question, Dad. No, what are you looking for? Son, what are you looking for in life? 17 years old, Joseph is. I don't know. I'm wandering in the field. I'm looking for uh, candy. What, what are you looking for? What are you looking for, I believe, is a divine question. Maybe I'm reading a little bit too much into it. But I don't like to think that the Bible is ink wasted. That every jot, every tittle has some kind of significance and that we can glean the devotion from that. That question is something that we need to ask ourselves a lot. Whether you're 17 years old or 70 years old, what am I looking for in life? Because we're all going to die one day. And after you're gone, nobody really thinks about you. And even if they think about you or you're in a history book, chances are it's not the real you or some distortion of you. So what's the purpose of life? What are we searching for? Are we searching for greatness? Are we searching for power? Are we searching to make our families happy? What is it that you're looking for, young man? And if you have no answer to this question, chances are you haven't thought hard enough about life yet. And not only that, listen in verse 16, it gets interesting because this Joseph says, well, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they're pasturing the flock. What a child. It's as if, it's like a little boy lost, you know, you know, lost at the zoo or something. And anybody who's over the age of 20, please tell me where my dad is. Please tell me where my family is. Please, as if this man knows. Is the man omniscient? Apparently he is. Jewish tradition talks about this man that finds Joseph in the field as an angel of the Lord. I don't know if that's true. But what we do know is this man will lead Joseph to the rest of his destiny. That this man, whoever the man is, will say, yes, they've moved from here. I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. And so Joseph walks into his destiny and the rest of his ruined life because this man led him there. You want to know what's crazy? This man, quote unquote, appears once prior. He appears in his father's life too. Hold that thought. I want to hit that later and remind me if I forget. Remind me if I forget. Listen to these little narrative hooks. Why waste ink on saying what we already know? He's looking for his brothers. If not to tell us there is somebody leading our protagonists towards their destiny. In this case, a man. But in the father's case, there was a man too. I'll give you a hint. Genesis chapter 32. So this man keeps popping up. It's like something from Lost or something or some strange television show, some character. So the man leads both father and son to their destiny, maybe even to their death. Maybe even to their death. So let's read about the death 
of Joseph. In verse 14, they see him coming, and the brothers say, here comes the dream master. That's how that literally translates. Let's kill him and throw him in the pit and say a beast ate him. Then let's see what will become of his dreams. But the oldest of the 11 sons, at this time 11, there will be 12, the oldest son, firstborn Reuben, he rescues him and says, don't take his life, shed no blood, let us not lay our hands on him. What does that mean? Lay your hands on him. Laying hands on him means to harm him. Don't harm him. Don't lay hands on him. And his plan was to rescue Joseph and to restore him to their pop, to their dad, Jacob. It comes about, Joseph reaches his brothers, and then they took hold of him and stripped him of his multicolored tunic and threw him in the pit, and then they sat down and ate a meal. That's really mean. And they're eating, and behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites comes from, uh, on its way down to Egypt bearing all these opulent wealth. It, it denotes the wealth that's going on down south. The wealth down south. And that's where Joseph's headed. That's where I'm headed. I'm going to Texas. <laughs> and verse 27, I'm sorry, I fast-forwarded way too much. Okay, so Egypt, in verse 26, Judah, the fourth brother. So there's 11 brothers. Judah, fourth brother, one of the older brothers. Judah opens his mouth, and he says, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. He says the same exact thing as his brother Reuben. After all, he's our own brother and our own flesh. When you read this, Reuben was a good brother. Was he? It's not a trick question. It's, yes, he was a good brother. Yet the irony is, again, you have to read the beginning, but you also have to be aware of the end of the story. That's where the value is in this approach, in this structure that I'm talking about. Reuben starts out well. But when you look at Genesis 49, he doesn't end well. He starts out good, but in the end, he doesn't redeem himself. This is scary for firstborn sons. I'm a firstborn son. That I can start off with a silver spoon in my mouth and making mom and dad happy, but I can end my life very poorly. It's possible such things happen. What about Judah? Was he a good brother? How many of you say that he was good? He saved his brother's life. Judah was good. He was decent. He says the same thing as Reuben. Don't lay hands on him. Actually, when you really think about it, um, one, one student of the Bible says, it is, of course, a dubious expression of brotherhood to sell someone to slavery. He's, he's, he's our brother. He's our brother. So don't kill him. Let's sell him to slavery. Let's make something out of it. And I can think, you can, I can imagine Joseph, he's in the back of the slave cart, and his hands are on the, on the bars, and he's being carted away, and he says, thank you, Reuben, thank you, Judah, for saving my life, thank you, thank you. And Judah, he's like, don't mention it, squirt. And out of the corner of his eye, you see that he's sneering, and he's counting money. You see, there is an evil at work in Judah, that while this looks good, Judah saved his brother's life. There is a dark evil at work in his life. One might call it self-interest. Self what profit is there in killing him? I mean, even in taking advantage and exploiting his brother, he wants to make something out of it. What profit is, is there? And this thing about self-interest is it's something in Judah's life that he's going to have to fight because the devil uses self-interest. Now... Listen to me, I know I've spoken about self-interest in months past, especially through our money series. We did a series on money. And I made the case that self-interest drives everything. Self-interest is the natural order of things. If you're not self-interested, you're just not awake. Self-interest is a fact of life. But the thing is, it is also something that the devil can really, really twist and use inside of you for great evil. And Judah is failing the test. Failing. 
And next week, we're going to hear about Judah again. And why are we talking about Judah? What does Judah have to do with this? Everything. And you're just going to have to listen to next week. Be here next week or listen to the podcast. Everything. Judah is important. And you can guess why. Think about why. But Judah, is in, he's in the thrall of the grip of the devil. His self-interest has overtaken him. He can't think about anybody else except what I will get out of it. Why is Christ unique in the world philosophies? Adam Smith, the father of capitalism, said everything is driven by self-interest. Thomas Hobbes, the great English philosopher, everything is driven by self-interest. And yet you have Jesus Christ who stretches his arms out and says, this is not for me, but it is all for you. He lives self-sacrificially. A different philosophy in all of the world's philosophies. A different way to live. Judah is in the grip of the devil's philosophy of it's all in, I'm in it for me. I'm in it for me. And he too must die before he dies. So we're not just talking about Father Jacob and we're not just talking about Joseph's son, but we're talking about a third party here, Judah. Judah must also die before he dies or else this whole story is going to fall apart by the time we get to Genesis 50. And I'm going to give you a hint for what's to come. The rest of the Bible falls apart if these three triangles, if these three points of the triangle do not have a touch from the Lord and change the way they live. Change the way you live, fathers, sons, daughters, wives, mothers, young women, young men. Change the way you live. Die before you die. The stubbornness in you is not going to serve you well. Even Jacob lived with stubbornness only for a time. Eventually the man will beat you, not beat you down, but the man will overcome you in the wilderness. All he has to do is touch that weak point, whether it's in your hip or your shoulder or your pride or your ego or your fear, or your anxiety, or your resentment, or your hatred, and he pushes that, and you're going to walk out of that encounter with a limp. Do you know what I'm talking about? If you've read the Joseph story, if you've read the Genesis story, you know what I'm talking about. God is at work wrestling with you so that you can finally let go and let him be God and stop being God. You know how hard that is? I wish there was something that I could give you, like a, I wish I could give you a pill and that we could, instead of hearing me talk about this, that we could somehow just walk away, surrender to God. It's the curse of the format. One man or one woman up in the front preaching a message but we can hear this and not really change. Friends, it's important for all of us to ingest the gospel, to die on our cross before we actually have to die. Because afterwards, there's no chance. And there's a lot of people, 11, 10 other brothers, who really don't die before they die. And so... In verse 28, Midianite traders come by. Joseph gets pulled out of the pit, and he spends the rest of his life in Egypt. Here's the question I want to ask you. Even though God brings a little bit of suffering, if God brings a little, let me, let me okay, change that verb. Allows, allows. There's some theology there. If God allows some suffering in your life, but you're going to say, I'm not going to have it, God, and I'm going to keep wandering around in my fields, and Joseph spends the next 30 years just wandering around in the fields and in the back alleys of Egypt, what are you looking for? He would have to go back to Egypt. Sometimes we, have brought, we are brought back to our sufferings again. 
and again and again because we didn't learn the first time. I think what we find in the Joseph story is that he learns. He gets it pretty quick. And what happens, yes, I do think a death before he dies occurs. I think a transformation happens. I do think that something happens deeply in Joseph's life. The death of Joseph, I do think, I do think happens. Because the rest of the story, you don't get the sense that this is somebody like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. You get the sense that you have a young man now who's experiencing suffering, but he puts his head down. He does the next right thing in faithfulness and obedience. More suffering comes. He gets thrown in jail again. But he doesn't twist and turn. He trusts his God. And blessings and prosperity and posterity and progeny and many things, other things that begin with P, come to his life. Because he submits early. If I can just share with you, there was a season of my life, well into my 30s, where I felt like everything I touched failed. I didn't have prosperity. I didn't have property. I didn't have power. I didn't have prestige. And I, I didn't even have progeny. And a very literal barrenness seemed to infect my life by the time I was late 20s, early 30s. And I was wondering, why is it that everything I touch seems to die? And I had to learn some lessons. The fact that I'm a pastor here today means some of my ego has been struck. That something in me has had to die. That even in my marriage, you think marriage for pastors, everything is like, you know, a a June Cleaver, Leave it to Beaver, you know, television show. No. My wife and I, we're like, like Captain Marvel versus the Hulk sometimes. And marriage has been sometimes this craziness of, you know, I, I'm not going to get into the details, but listen. Even in the midst of that, the death of Wayne has to happen. And my hope is that I'm not having to learn those same stupid lessons again and again. So Joseph, I do believe for the rest of the story you see a mature Joseph. But hang with me because this gets even more interesting. What about the brothers? What about the father? And this transitions us to the death of Jacob. Right, what about the brothers and what about the father? Let's continue in verse 29 of chapter 37 and see how this unfolds and what happens. Do the other characters die before they die? Reuben returns to the pit. Joseph was not there. I mean, first of all, where were you, Reuben? Okay, so Joseph's not there. He gets upset. He's like, oh my gosh, what did we do? What did we do? And so they decide to, what do they do? They take a goat. They kill the goat. And then they take Joseph's tunic, the multicolored robe, and they dip it in the blood of the goat. And then they say, here, Dad, we found this. What a bunch of greasy liars. Unbelievable. It gets worse. And the father says, my son, he must have been killed. Surely something has eaten him, torn him to pieces. He mourns and tears his clothes. And then in verse 35, his sons and daughters, his sons try to comfort him. Try, like, hey, Pop, I'm sorry to tell you this. Your son's dead. And he falls apart. And you have the heart to continue the deception? Dad, honestly, I, I, I can't bear to see you like this anymore. The truth is, Joseph is alive. I mean, any reasonable son, any reasonable daughter would have done that. But the thing is, the dear old man, how cruel they are to their father on Father's Day. How cruel they are to their father. But the thing is, they're not the first. They're not the, you know, Jacob was so cruel to his father. How cruel was Jacob to his father, Isaac? He was cruel in the same way. What were the two props that these wicked sons used to deceive their father? What were the two props that they used to deceive? A garment and blood. What did Jacob use to deceive his father, Isaac? 
a garment and blood. Similar props, similar deception. You know, this is crazy because when you read the Joseph story, you're like, oh my gosh, this, your eyes open to see all of the family dynamics. It's like, I see zeros and ones. I see the matrix. Everything is clear now. I get it. You know, there comes these moments of clarity where you're like, aha, I understand. It took my wife years to get through to me how enmeshed I was with my own family of origin. I'm like, what's the problem? They live in New York. I live in Seattle. But then when I saw it, it was like I saw everything clearly. This is how the family works. And here we see, like the father, like the son, how, how much they're similar to each other. How similar they are. I want to show you this clip. It's from a movie. Um, the movie's called The Tree of Life by Terrence Malick. And this clip, uh, it's one of those movies that you've probably never heard of. It's a little bit dated. It's also... But it's very reflective. This is a summer of reflection. Reflect on families. And I want you to see this clip and just reflect on um, what it means for fathers and sons. If you could just play that real quick. Start transferring. Good job, nobody wants. A day of work. Father. Tithe every Sunday. Always you wrestle inside me. Always you will. Young Jack, all I ever wanted for you was make you strong and Grow up and be your own boss. Well, maybe I've been tough on you. I'm not proud of that. I'm as bad as you are. I'm more like you than her. about all I've done in life. Otherwise, I've drawn a zilch. It's a very powerful moment when both the father and the son can realize just how similar they really are. When the father recognizes, I know I've been harsh, and when the son has the wherewithal to say, I'm not like mom, I'm actually just like you. We're more like them than we realize. It's fair to say, I'm as bad as you are, like that little boy says. I'm as bad as you are in that hot Texas day. I'm as bad as you are. I'm more like you than her. What, boy? I'm not bad. You're not. <laughs> I guess I am pretty bad because I'm out of a job. My life, I've drawn a zilch. You know, these rhythms of life, they really repeat themselves. If the older I get, and I'm not that old, but I think I'm a little wiser today than I was years back. I'm beginning to find stuff repeats itself. Same sins, same mistakes, same cycles, same garment, same blood, same props, same deception. 
The brothers have to die before they die. And next week, we're going to talk more about that. But let me conclude with the death of Jacob. We're rounding third base here. What about the father? What happens to the father, Jacob? What, what, what happens in his life? Let's look at Genesis 49. So if you remember A, this would be A prime. This is the end of the story. So we've seen the death of the son. Now we approach the death of the father. And in this case, Jacob really is about to die. He's old. The sons have been reunited. There's peace. Jacob says, I've seen you with my eyes. Now I can die. So all is happy. All is well. And here, Jacob, he's about to pass away. I don't know if any of you have witnessed the passing of fathers or mothers yet. Um, it's a holy moment. And Jacob, in chapter 49, verse 29, turns to his sons, and he says, I'm about to be gathered to my people. I'm about to die. So bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the fields of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave uh, in the fields of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Cain, all this technical legal language. It's the cave which Abraham, your grandpa, your grandfather, no, your great-grandfather, my grandfather, he bought with the field. He bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite. There he buried my grandfather. Uh, there my grandfather and his wife, my grandmother Sarah was buried there. My father and my mother Isaac and Rebecca were buried there. I buried Leah. There I'm going to be buried. And with this legal language, the story kind of wraps up. The story wraps up, but he ties it back to his root. Ties it back to his root. Let me tell you a brief, quick story. My own root, my own roots. My father immigrated to the to the United States in 1975. A year later, I was born, and um, uh, he moved to New York. He was in New York, and he did very well in business, my dear old dad. He did very well, well enough to take care of his, all of his brothers and sisters and provide for them when they came to the States. And he even brought his father and mother, my grandparents, to New York. I remember, we all lived there in Queens and Flushing, New York. And um, when my grandfather died in his 70s, so it's, it's, it means a lot to me that my, my father, he's 80, he's still alive. But my grandfather died because he had lung cancer, too much smoking. So my dad had to face a choice. Do I, bury, do I bury my father in New York or back in Seoul, in Korea? And my dad decided to buy a plot of land out in Long Island, New York. And there, my grandparents, who lived through World War II, who lived through the Korean War, had their bones buried in Long Island, New York. And he bought enough land for him to be buried, and my mother, and all of their brothers and sisters. In fact, my uncle, when he passed, is buried there next to my grandparents. I don't know what will happen when I die. I'm perfectly content to be buried here among the fire ants. But... Maybe at the end of my life, for whatever reason, I want the story to be complete. I want to be reattached to my heritage because God had a reason for bringing my father out of Korean War and Vietnam here to New York into this land which he says, if it wasn't for God bringing me here, I wouldn't be a Christian and you wouldn't be Christians and you wouldn't be a pastor. I'm just, I'm just, just another Christian, but it means a lot. There's a story that gets reattached at the end where Jacob says, bury me not in Egypt, no matter how wealthy it is, bring me back to the land where God brought us. A reattachment to the story, because Jacob says, everything that happened in my life has meaning and purpose. Even all those years I thought my son Joseph was dead has meaning, it has purpose, because God used all of the good and the seemingly bad in my life. So did Jacob really die before he died? Do you know what the word Jacob literally means? It means heel grabber. Heel grabber. 
Would you like it if you're walking around and your little brother is always grabbing your heel? It's annoying. He was a usurper. He was a cheater. He was a stealer. He was stubborn. How many of you in this room, how many of us can say, I'm so stubborn that God could give me a sign right in front of my face. I could walk right into it and still keep hitting it again. And again, it's like, you know, the two-by-four beam, right? That we never learn how to bow, right? Dunk. <laughs> Let me try this again. Dunk. Let me try this again. But learning to bow and to stoop with our stubbornness, does Jacob learn? You know what happens? One night in Genesis chapter 32, Jacob has to face all of his demons, all of his lack of success and the trickery that he tricks other people. He gets tricked. He suffers with the infertility of life. His wife, his beloved wife, his beloved wife, Rachel, Rachel says, give me children, Jacob. Give me children or I die. And you know what he says? Am I God? Am I God that I, I can give you children? I mean, I mean, listen, dude, this is the woman you love. You love this woman. And in the meantime, on a hot Texas summer evening, they're fighting in the kitchen, and they're yelling. She's saying, but you're not giving me any children. He says, but am I God? But the thing is, Jacob, 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 think. Your father and mother went through the same exact thing. Your grandparents went through the same exact thing. What did dad do? He prayed. Isaac prayed for Rebecca for 20 years. Fathers, is it so hard to pray for your wife? The greatest gift you can give to your children is your love for your wife. Pray for her. But she thinks I'm God. What, can, what am I supposed to do? Dude, pray for her. Put your ego down and pray for her. Love her. She needs to feel safe. She needs to feel protected. But she thinks I'm God. So what? That's an improvement. Love her. Jacob doesn't know this basic stuff. But in the wilderness, he wrestles. And in the middle of the night, whoever the man is, the man appears again like father, like son. And the man pokes at him at his weakest point. You know, you watch the NBA playoffs. It was horrible. I mean, depending on which side you stand, right? Poke him in, in, his, poke him in his Achilles. Poke the whole team in their Achilles. Right? The weakest point, they go down. God is prodding the weakest point because he needs to see you go down not because he's doing this but, but it only unless we go down will we learn what our weakness is so we can be lifted up in the wilderness God wrestles with you and with I he wrestles and in the wilderness if you pass that test you're supposed to walk out with a limp if you pass that test you're supposed to walk the rest of your life with a little bit of a limp, recognizing I have limitation, and limitation is a good thing. And in the process, we die before we die. Jacob, yes, he dies before he dies. He dies before he dies. He dies. He dies. But let me finish, please, with one last verse, and then we'll conclude. And that's chapter 50, verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face, he wept over him, and he kissed him. There's three things Joseph does there that he does repeatedly, again and again in this end of the story. Those three things are, first of all, fall. Secondly, is weep. And third is kiss. This is a very different Joseph from the checked out boy 15 chapters ago. Very different boy. 
In the beginning, you have somebody like just wandering around the field. He doesn't know what he's doing with his, hey, brothers, emotionally completely distanced. He's, he's, like, he's like Iceman. He has no feelings. He's not connected. But a mature man decades later, a mature father and a mature husband, I'm going to say this. This is the driving point. A mature father and a mature husband is emotionally connected. The ability to cry and to weep and to fall is the mark of a mature person. Three things I want to leave you with. The first thing is that very point. Maturity is feeling. It's a mistake to think that maturity is stoicism and never showing my feelings. Nope. Nope. I'll be the first to tell you that emotional connection, the ability to feel, is a mark of maturity. If you're not able to feel, that actually is a red flag. That's the, the klaxon. If you're not feeling, something, something's really off. And you're on the verge of something scary. Depression, psychosis, neurosis, something. If you can't feel. A mature person feels. The second thing I want to leave you with is, you know, we're more like them than we know. We're more like them than we know. We're so like them. We're so like them. Holy cow. Now I'll never be like him. I'll never be like her. Sorry, too late. We're more like them. And the third thing, the good thing is this. God is wrestling right now with you. That even if it's not going well, it's all God wrestling within inside of you. Just like the line from that movie, Father, always you wrestle inside me and always you will. Always, Father, you wrestle inside me. Always you will. Lots of stuff here today, right? It's a story. You can get a lot from a story if you look carefully. 